Uh, as mentioned, today is Reformation Sunday, and historically, every year for Reformation Sunday, Crossway um, will set aside a, sun- a Sunday to do a biographical sermon. Um, and so if you're visiting today, just know that this is not the normal way that we uh, typically go about our sermons. Normally, we are preaching through books of the Bible, uh, passage by passage. Uh, but these sermons, biographical sermons, are ones in which the life and ministry of a particular individual are essentially used as something of an extended illustration of what we can learn from Scripture. And this year, I've chosen to do uh, the individual C.S. Lewis or uh, Clive Staples Lewis, otherwise known as Jack. A um, couple things to say at the outset is, first of all, I am not an expert on C.S. Lewis. There are uh, C.S. Lewis scholars, and I am not one of those. I'm an amateur, and so I'm probably trying to do something that I shouldn't. Um, I have tried to read most of what Lewis has written outside of his really academic stuff. There's a few things I haven't, but I've read most of it. And so I'd like to think that I'm, I'm decently informed on Lewis and interested in him. Um, a couple other things is Lewis certainly had his theological issues at times, um, and we don't need to brush over those, but we can still appreciate Lewis and what he does offer. And today, I will simply be providing a mere, a mere introduction. I didn't mean to put it that way, but I, uh, I just realized that. A mere introduction, some of you will get that. Uh, there's several main themes in Lewis's writings that will be unexplored here. We're ju- it's really unsatisfying. We're just going to be scratching the surface. Um, but what we'll do today is, we'll see if this works. Um, is the slide still running? Or there should be, there should be a whole set of slides here. Um, but what we'll do today is, um, we'll go over a brief biography of Lewis, and then we'll hone in specifically on his conversion. And then after doing that, we will focus on three key themes from his life and writings. Specifically, um, all right, perfect. Specifically, thanks. Specifically, we'll look at his intellectualism, the theme of joy or longing and pleasure, and then the theme of imagination. So intellectualism, joy, and imagination. All right, so just by way of brief biography, uh, C.S. Lewis was born in Belfast, which during his lifetime became part of Northern Ireland. He was born in 1898, so there you can see a picture of him and his family. Um, that's part of his, some of those are his, his extended family, like aunts and cousins. Um, his mother died of cancer when C.S. Lewis was nine years old, and he had one sibling, a brother named Warning, who you can see there with his with their bicycles. Um, after his mother's death, uh, Lewis's father sent him to various boarding schools, which Lewis says he absolutely hated. Uh, it was during this season of life, actually, that Lewis abandoned his Christian faith. Uh, he went to study literature at Oxford University, so there's a picture of him in his undergraduate years. And eventually, he lived through both world wars, and so he fought in World War I as an officer. Um, he eventually suffered a shrapnel wound, though, and so was sent back home and relieved of his duties. During these years, he formed a close, uh, potentially romantic relationship uh, with Mrs. Moore, the older lady on the right, 
um, who is the mother of his roommate and friend during officer training. So she became something of a mother to him, but it was also potentially romantic. Um, the Moors and Warney um, and his brother formed something of a new family. Lewis would go on to call this his family throughout the rest of his life, and he lived with them pretty much till the end. Um, Lewis began a, uh, his career as an Oxford literary scholar and lecturer. You can see here a picture of him at uh, Magdalen College. And we'll get into this further, but during this time, he eventually uh, yielded reluctantly to theism, and then eventually, partly through his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien, he came eventually to embrace Christianity itself. And so he was friends with Tolkien, who is author, as you may know, of The Lord of the Rings, and they led an academic literary group called the Inklings that would gather to discuss their work and critique each other and press each other. Uh, Lewis had an incredible writing career. You may know him uh, probably most famous for the Chronicles of Narnia series written for children. Uh, he also wrote many nonfiction as well. Later in life, Lewis took a post teaching at Cambridge. And then even later in life, he married uh, a woman named Helen Joy Davidman, a, a American, um, who actually then died only four years after their marriage. So there's a picture of Joy you can see. Um, Lewis then eventually died in 1965, one week before he would have turned 65 years old. So there's a very brief description of Lewis's life. Let's now hone in specifically on Lewis's conversion, uh, since the way that Lewis came to Christianity is actually quite significant, it seems, for the way he eventually approached the Christian faith altogether. So as I mentioned, Lewis was raised in a Christian home, but during his school days, he abandoned Christianity. He encountered other religious ideas while reading Virgil and other classical authors, um, but these were to be treated as nothing more than sheer illusion, he found. He came to embrace a scientific account of religion, as he saw it, where religions are simply mythologies invented by human beings to try to make sense of things. And so he learned from teachers and from scholars that religion, essentially, these mythologies, these other religions, were obviously just uh, human illusion. Um, but if that's the case, Lewis wondered, what made Christianity any different? Was it not simply the modern version of these illusions? Christianity is just one of a thousand religions all claiming to be true? Does it just so happen to be the unique one that's actually right? And so you hear this in his, I'll be quoting a, a lot from a book that Lewis wrote called Surprised by Joy. Uh, this is Lewis's, the closest thing we have to Lewis's autobiography. It's not a complete autobiography since it's not about his life in total, but it's specifically about his conversion. And he talks about these wrestlings in this passage. He says, conscious causes of doubt arose. One came from reading the classics, here especially in Virgil. One was presented with a mass of religious ideas, and all teachers and editors took it for granted at the outset that these religious ideas were sheer illusion. No one ever attempted to show in what sense Christianity fulfilled paganism or paganism prefigured Christianity. 
The accepted position seemed to be that religions were normally a mere fargo of nonsense, though our own Christianity, by a fortunate exception, was true. The other religions were never were not even ex, the other religions were not even explained in the early earlier Christian fashion as the work of devils. That I might conceivably have been bought to brought to believe. But the impression I got was that religion in general, though utterly false, was a natural growth, a kind of endemic nonsense into which humanity tended to blunder. In the midst of a thousand such religions stood our own, the thousand and first, labeled true. But on what grounds could I believe this exception? It obviously was in some general sense the same kind of thing as all the rest. Why was it so differently treated? Need I, at any rate, continue to treat it differently? I was very anxious not to. Lewis didn't want to be a Christian. He had motivations not to be. And so he came to embrace atheism and materialism. And what I mean by materialism or naturalism is that the physical world is all that there is. This physical world is all that there is. There is no non-physical world. There's no God. Yet Lewis was never truly satisfied with his condition or this position. He felt himself split at odds within himself. On the one side was his cold, rational atheism, and uh, which, which made the world very dry and meaningless. And on the other side, nonetheless, was his attraction for the imaginative and meaningful, such as he found in the pagan mythology he would read as a literary student. He longed for things of adventure and grand, significant, grand significance. Those things were, as he said, joy seemed to pierce through the otherwise meaninglessness. And so he says, Such then was the state of my imaginative life. Over against it stood the life of my intellect. The two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth. On the other side, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. Such, then, was my position. To care for almost nothing but the gods and heroes, the garden of Hesperides, Lancelot, and the Grail, and to believe in nothing but atoms and evolution and military service. At times, the strain was severe. So Lewis finds his imagination and reason pulling him in totally different directions. He feels split between his outer world of a cold, meaningless atheism and his inner world of rich, meaningful imagination. Nonetheless, one of the greatest advantages that Lewis saw in atheism, the reason he was eager to reject Christianity, as he said, was that it met his desire to be Lord of his own life. It meant he couldn't be interfered with by the existence of some God who might then lay claims on him. He says, quote, I had always wanted above all things not to be interfered with. I had wanted, mad wish, to call my soul my own. He goes on, 
What mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental, transcendental interferer. If its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depths of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with barbed wire, fence, and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted, some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine alone. The materialist conception would not have seemed so immensely probable to me if it had not favored at least one of my wishes. The materialistic universe had one great negative attraction to offer me. It had no other, and this had to be accepted. One had to look out on a meaningless dance of atoms to realize that all the apparent beauty was just a subjective sphosphorence and to relegate everything one valued to the world of mirage. That price I tried loyally to pay. In other words, I, I desperately wanted to believe there wasn't a God. And if it meant I had to suffer the fact that everything I thought that was beautiful was just a mirage of it, I was willing to try to pay that price in order to get God out of the equation. But soon Lewis could no longer accept his materialism. A world confined to mere physical reality can't explain things like the existence of logic, morality, and beauty that Lewis uh, was so interested in and so grasped by. But if rejecting materialism, he could no longer then resist the conclusion that he so desperately wanted to avoid the inconvenient truth of God's existence. Lewis explains... The real terror was that if you seriously believed in even such a God or spirit, supreme spirit that is, as I now admitted, a wholly new situation developed. What previously was a mere philosophical theorem, cerebrally, cere cerebrally entertained, that is just something I think about, something I entertain in my mind, it now that what, what was once a philosophical idea now stood upright and became a living presence. I was allowed to play at philosophy no longer. This isn't a game anymore. What had been an ideal, just an idea, now became a command. And what might not be expected of one, total surrender, the absolute leap in the dark were demanded. The reality which, with which no treaty can be made was upon me. The demand was not even all or nothing. I think that stage had been passed. Now the demand was simply all. It reminds me of Lewis's later description of the lion, Aslan, in Narnia, who represents Christ. Throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, we are told that Aslan is not a tame lion. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Lucy, one of the main characters, first hears of this lion named Aslan, she instinctively asks, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. 
He's the king. The existence of God was certainly not something that Lewis, Lewis wished to be true. Rather, it was something he conceded despite his wishes. So Lewis says that it wasn't God or wasn't he who was pursuing God as if he was pursuing some long desired object of an arduous quest. Rather, it was clearly then God who was pursuing him. He says, quote, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. He is the untamed Aslan on the prowl for Lewis. Lewis says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene. This is where he was, at, where he was teaching. Night after night, feeling that whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. So that's why some have called C.S. Lewis the reluctant convert or the, the reluctant prophet. But this didn't solve all of Lewis's quandaries even yet. Uh, in fact, at this point, uh, he had only accepted theism, belief in God, not Christianity, specifically belief in Jesus himself. Nor had Lewis yet reconciled his rationalism with his desire for joy in the imaginative and meaningful. He says, if anything, he thought Christianity might require him to give up such a pursuit of joy rather than provide the answer to it. He says, no slightest hint was vouchsafed me, that is granted me, guaranteed to me, that there ever had been or ever would be any connection between God and joy. If anything, it was the reverse. For all I knew, the total rejection of what I called joy might be one of its demands, might be the very first demand that God would make upon me. But it was partly through conversation with Tolkien, actually, that Lewis came to discover how Christianity would meet his longings. Tolkien, uh, who was a Christian, uh, helped Lewis realize that Christianity's truthfulness lie not merely in its rational validity, but also in its ability to meet our deep longing for meaning, beauty, and significance, to provide a grand story that makes sense of reality. In this sense, Christianity is the true myth. Not myth in the sense of something that's made up like a fairy tale, but myth in the sense of a grand story that makes sense of life, that captures the underlying structures of the world, that resounds with the deepest truths of our existence. As Lewis says, he came to realize Christianity is a true myth with the tremendous difference, Lewis says, that it really happened. It's like the other myths that try to provide grand meaning and a grand story with the exception that this one truly happened. As Lewis's biographer Alistair McGrath explains, such pagan myths offer a fragment of the truth, not its totality. 
They are like splintered fragments of the true light. Yet when the full and true story is told, that is Christianity, it is able to bring to fulfillment all that was right and wise in those fragmentary visions of things. Christianity, rather than being one myth alongside many others, is thus the fulfillment of all previous mythological religions. Christianity tells a true story about humanity, which makes sense of all the stories that humanity tells about itself. Lewis now realized that he did not have to declare that the great myths of the pagan age were totally false. They were echoes or anticipations of the full truth, which was made known only in and through the Christian faith. Christianity brings to fulfillment and completion imperfect and partial insights about reality scattered abroad in human culture. Tolkien gave Lewis a lens, a way of seeing things, which allowed him to see Christianity as bringing to fulfillment such echoes and shadows of the truth that arose from human questioning and yearning. Lewis himself explains it this way. The perplexing multiplicity of religions, remember that, that, that angst that he had about how many religions there were, why would Christianity be true? That perplexing multiplicity of religions, he says, it began to sort itself out now. The question was no longer to find the one simply true religion among a thousand religions simply false. It was rather, where has religion reached its true maturity? Where, if anywhere, has the hints of all paganism been fulfilled? Paganism had been only the childhood of religion, or only a prophetic dream. Where was the thing full grown? Here, that is Christianity, and here only, in all time, the myth must have become fact. The word, flesh, God, man. This is not a religion, nor a philosophy. It is the summing up and the actuality of them all. Thus, Lewis, the rationalist, was now able to reconcile with Lewis, the romanticist, the lover of myth, beauty, and joy. Lewis's rational and imaginative senses, which had hitherto been at odds, pulling him in two different directions, telling him two different messages about the nature of the world, they were now able to collide and find rest in the grand story that is Christianity, which is why some people have called Lewis the rationalist romantic for bringing both those together. Christianity, in other words, provides a more satisfying, comprehensive story than anything else, according to Lewis. Lewis's conversion was not due to a single nail-in-the-coffin argument for Christianity or a logical deduction of if A, then B, then C. Rather, his conversion entailed something like a process of making sense of the whole, making sense of the world, the realization that if Christianity is true, then all else falls into place. Previously unrelated, disconnected, sometimes even seemingly irreconcilable questions and longings suddenly snapped into place once located into this greater scheme of things. In Christianity, Lewis finally discovered a foundational 
order, a deeper order to things rooted in the being of God that could make sense then of things like science, art, morality, history, culture, logic, and even as we saw the existence of non-Christian religions. In one of his later essays, Is Theology Poetry?, Lewis captures this idea using the analogy of the sun. He says, quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That as the sun, in other words, illuminates the landscape, shines light on the landscape, so Christianity best illuminates and makes sense of all of reality. Light is not something that we see. You can't go out and look at light itself. But it's something through which we see everything else. Light is not something seen, but something that makes seeing itself a possibility. And so too, Christianity makes true seeing possible, Lewis says. We might compare it to a map. The ability of a map to make sense of our location and our surroundings indicates its reliability. Likewise, Lewis essentially argues that the map, quote-unquote, offered by the Christian faith proves itself to correspond to what we actually observe and experience in this world. It is a reliable map. Now, let's take time to appreciate three themes in Lewis's thought, as I mentioned at the outset. Each of these, I I think, are actually embedded in his conversion account. They're sort of implicit in his conversion, even as they eventually take on greater significance uh, and shape in his later writings. The first is what we might call Christian intellectualism, or the, the intellect, the Christian employment of the intellect. And by intellect here, what I mean is really uh, how Lewis models a sort of deeply thoughtful, intellectually serious and rigorous approach to Christianity. Um, When I first read Lewis, uh, maybe in my more cage stage, as sometimes people say cage stage theological uh, time, um, there were things I didn't like about him. He has some theology that I don't agree with even till this day. And so there's parts of him that annoyed me. Um, But the more I read him, the more I admire, respect, and appreciate him. The man is just absolutely brilliant, incredibly smart, incredibly perceptive, incredibly thoughtful. And keep in mind, he, he did all of this work as a layman. He was not a trained theologian um, or a trained philosopher or anything of that sort. He was not a pastor. He was, a, a, as we might say, an ordinary Christian. But he sought to apply the the unique brilliance that God gave him. He was clearly gifted by God with a a sound, with with an incredible mind, incredible thoughtfulness. And he sought to apply that brilliance in service to the Christian faith. It makes me think of Jesus when he tells us in Matthew 22, um, when when, when one of the religious leaders comes up to Jesus and asks him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That we are to bring all of our faculties, all of who we are to bear. Even in our church's philosophy of ministry, we talk about what full uh, maturity should look like in the believer. And one of those is is a maturing mind. 
our, our, our deepening understanding. On the one hand, Lewis is just incredibly insightful and perceptive. Um, for example, the screw tape letters is a fictional series of letters that Lewis writes, uh, this, this sort of imaginary account of letters written from a senior demon who's sort of in the bureaucracy of hell, and he's writing to his nephew, uh, Wormwood, offering Wormwood advice on how to tempt and corrupt his human assignment. In other words, instead of writing a book on how to fight temptation, Lewis does something of the reverse. He provides us a playbook that exposes our susceptibilities to temptation. And if you've ever read the screw tape letters, you know how incredibly insightful Lewis is about the human condition and how perceptive he is to our sinful hearts. When you read Lewis, you almost feel as if someone gave him a map to your own soul and your own personal struggles. It's like he has an x-ray and he's able to dissect you. He's just incredibly perceptive and insightful. But Lewis's intellectualism, intellectualism is often also yielded toward, wielded toward apologetic interests. He often uses his intellect towards defense of Christianity. He's eager to show the reasonableness of the Christian faith. He does this in works like Mere Christianity or a, a book uh, called Miracles where he defends the nature of miracles against materialism or the problem of pain where he seeks to explain the existence of evil in this world. Lewis represents a form of Christian intellectualism by which I mean an, an approach to the Christian life that values and seeks to demonstrate the intellectual respectability of the Christian faith. It's an approach to the Christian life that values and seeks to demonstrate and live out the intellectual respectability of the faith. And, 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 and I find that incredibly encouraging. I find that, in, I, I, I admire that. I'm, deep, I'm personally deeply attracted to that, as you might imagine. I want to say at the outset, uh, just a caveat, I know we're all gifted in different ways and not all of us are going to um, necessarily be as, as sort of geared to the intellectual matters um, as, as the rest of us. Um, we're all gifted in different ways. But I do think that Lewis holds up to us a, a positive vision of a robustly intellectual Christianity that we should all value, even if it's not our, our skill set. It's something that we should all value. We can think of uh, are the sort of questions that we face today that, that, that helps us maybe tap into the, the need for an intellectual Christianity, of why we would need this today, of, of why Lewis felt he needed, it in his, he needed it in his own time. If both adults are consenting and they're not hurting anyone, why does the Bible condemn homosexuality? If God is both all-powerful and all-good, then why does he allow evil to exist? How does Christianity square with the findings of modern science regarding human origins and the age of the earth? Is Christianity the only way to God? Is Christianity sexist in how it portrays the roles of men and women? Does Christianity condone slavery? And we can think of further and more and more questions, more pressing issues that we face today, even in the complex world we live, just trying to think well about the various issues that we're confronted with. This 
matters to me personally, this, uh, this idea of uh, intellectual Christianity, because I personally feel the sort of the, the, the depth of these questions and these wrestlings. I wrestle with these questions. I feel their weight. And to me, at least personally, an anti-intellectualism that quickly kind of dismisses these things or seeks really simplistic answers, to me feels like a dismissal of the very concerns I have. Um, and so I find there's something really satisfying about Lewis. In some ways, it would be like, um, my wife and I are, are different in this way. I like things to be very orderly in the home, so I like things put away in their proper spot and very organized. My wife cares about that too. But what's more important to her is that things are actually clean, like not dirty. And I, can, I could, could kind of live with a little bit of dust on my shelf as long as the books are put away properly. For her, that dust is like, ugh, gives her anxiety, right? And so if she was to come to me and be like, you know what, this room is really dirty. Can we please clean that? It, it, it's kind of bothering me how dirty it's getting. And I was to simply say, ah, that doesn't bother me. It's fine. Let's not worry about it. It's dismissive of those concerns that she has. And I, I can feel similarly with a sort of anti-intellectual approach to Christianity. I feel these questions deeply. I know many people do. And they're, worth, they're questions worth wrestling with and answering. Mark Knoll, who is potentially our generation's greatest church historian, opens his uh, incredibly influential book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, this way. The book opens, quote, The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. In other words, his book is an analysis and critique of evangelicalism's unfortunately not too uncommon tendency toward anti-intellectualism, a failure even at times, a disdain for intellectual pursuits and a disdain and rejection of a robustly intellectual expression of the faith. And so on the one, on the one hand, I, I feel this personally, but also we want to be able to show the Christian faith has the resources for handling the world's most pressing concerns. It doesn't mean that we will always have the answers ourselves. I'm not suggesting that. But a confidence that Christianity does and we can explore the treasures of it. Christianity is not intellectually inferior or inept. It provides an explanation to all of life. And therefore it is capable, in fact Lewis would argue, it is the most capable of providing satisfactory answers to our deepest questions. And in Lewis, I find an example of one who is interested in applying his mind full-heartedly to his faith and the questions of his day. One specific application of Lewis's approach in this way is his desire to shake us of the fog of what he considers the fog of our predominant contemporary thinking. Lewis, let me say that again. Lewis wants to, one of the things that Lewis wants to do here is to shake us of the fog of what is our predominant contemporary thinking. And so Lewis has this concept that he calls chronological snobbery, which is uh, the idea that just because an idea is new or an idea is current, it's automatically better than what came before. He says this, the uncritical, he defines chrono, chronological snobbery this way. It is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. From seeing this, one passes to the realization, though, that our own age is also a period 
and certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristics, illusions. We're in an age just like any other age that's going to pass. They are likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so ingrained in the age that no one dares to attack or feels it necessary to defend them. Okay, we, we live in an age where there are certain assumptions that we sort of carry as a society, and Lewis wants us to be aware of that and to question it. And Lewis, well, this is one of the reasons Lewis advocates reading older books, reading books by dead people, okay, because they can expose us to the assumptions of our own present day. Reading old books is sort of like traveling to another country. When you travel to another country, if you've had the privilege of doing that, you know that oftentimes you get to learn from another culture and it sheds light on your own culture. And so likewise, reading books from previous time periods, like reading Christian church history, reading from the history of the church, can expose some of the assumptions and the blind spots of our own day. Lewis wants us to realize that the ideas and values of our own age are just as provisional and transient of those of bygone ages. As he says in The Four Loves, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. You see this in our modern world where we are inundated with competing accounts of reality. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the witch tells Edmund that she is good. She's the good ruler of Narnia. The beavers, though, claim she is the evil tyrant. And like the Pevensey children, we must choose which accounts we are ultimately going to believe. One of my favorite examples of this theme is from the, the Silver Chair in the Narnia series. At the beginning of the Silver Chair, Aslan appears to Jill on a very high mountain where the air and her thoughts are clear. He gives her very specific instructions for her and her partner's journey. And he emphasizes to her the importance of keeping her mind very focused on remembering the instructions, remembering the signs. Aslan says, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night. And when you wake in the middle of the night, and whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. However, as Jill descends to the land below, Aslan blows her on his breath down to, the, to the, the land below, the air does thicken, and she inevitably forgets the instructions. And as the children's journey progresses, Jill only loses further grasp of Aslan's instructions. Towards the end of the story, the children encounter a green witch, who seeks to entrance them with her magic. She takes a handful of green powder and she burns it in a nearby fire. Lewis writes, a very sweet and drowsy smell came from it. And all through the conversation which followed, that smell grew stronger and filled the room. And it made it harder to think. Secondly, the witch took out a musical instrument, rather like a mandolin. She began to play it with her fingers 
a steady, monotonous thrumming that you didn't notice after a few minutes. But the less you noticed it, the more it got into your brain and your blood, this also made it hard to think. All of this, the, the thickening air, the green witch's magic, I think is Lewis's way of representing the effects, the assumptions that our contemporary world, what we might call worldly thinking, have on us over time. We begin to absorb the beliefs of our surrounding culture. Christianity, consequently, increasingly seems increasingly less plausible. Eventually, Lewis writes, the magic was in full strength. And of course, the more enchanted you get, the more you feel that you are not enchanted at all. The children lose their grip on reality and their mission. Jill finds herself giving in to the witch's lies, even finding herself wanting to give in. It would be easier than resisting, she feels. Lewis writes, it was such a relief to give in. But so far, I haven't mentioned Puddle Glum. Puddle Glum is a marsh wiggle which is a creature that Lewis invented, something like a combination of a frog and a man. Now, Puddleglum is very gloomy and pessimistic, and throughout the entire journey, he's constantly acting as something of a wet blanket. But maybe it's precisely his demeanor, his sobriety, that makes him most suited to do what he's about to do. Puddleglum, Lewis writes, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire, and then he did a very brave thing. He knew it would hurt him badly, and so it did. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat hearth, eventually putting out the smoke. And calling the children to action, Puddleglum expresses his resolve to carry out their mission. Lewis says that we need more people who will be brave like Puddle Glum, who will do the discomforting thing of pursuing clear-headed thinking in the midst of a foggy world. The second theme I want to draw our attention to is that of joy. And by joy, I mean this idea of, of, of a pleasure of intense longing. That seems to be how Lewis uses the idea of joy, these, these things that pierce our experience and give us this, this pleasure from an intense longing of something that we're looking to. Or we can think of more broadly how Lewis uh, sort of conceives of, the, of a Christian virtue that is a deepening affection for what is true, good, and beautiful. It makes me think of 2 Corinthians 4.17. This is actually a, a passage from which Lewis gets the title of one of his famous essays, The Weight of Glory. Um, but Paul writes there, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. The, the weight of glory, the, the, what we long for, what awaits us far outweighs any sort of discomfort or pain or suffering we experience now. Now recall that Lewis did not reject joy and longing as unhelpful or even deceptive in our quest for truth as some might think of joy and longing as somehow clouding our judgments and our objectivity, Lewis actually saw it as helpful for our discernment of the truth. As he explained in his account of his conversion, he said joy was not a deception. 
Its visitations were rather the moments of clearest consciousness we had. And he develops this line of thinking further in his book, Mere Christianity. He says that we all have this deep, insatiable longing that cannot be met. That no matter what we look to in this world to fill it, we are left unsatisfied. Our, our hopes are frustrated and dashed again and again and again. In The Weight of Glory, Lewis describes this desire as, quote, only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. And so how are we to explain this universal human experience of longing? Lewis says this. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In other words, just as physical hunger points to the need for human food, the human need for food, so all humans are inbuilt with a need for God precisely uh, precisely because we were made by God and for God. A desire that he alone can satisfy. As some have said, that we all have a, a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. Or as Augustine aptly said centuries earlier, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless then until they find their rest in thee. It makes me think of Ecclesiastes 3.11, where the author of Ecclesiastes writes that God has put eternity into man's heart. This is what John Piper calls Christian hedonism. Now, sometimes folks think of hedonism, this idea of living for the pursuit of pleasure, as an inherently unchristian thing. Now, it can be, of course, but Piper learned from Lewis that as Christians, we are to be the best sort of hedonists. We are to pursue our greatest pleasure because in so doing, that will mean we are pursuing nothing less than God himself, our greatest pleasure, our greatest longing. Thus, when we pursue sinful pleasures, this means uh, we show that our appetite for pleasure is actually far too weak, not too strong. So Lewis explains in The Weight of Glory, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In contrast for Lewis, sin is fundamentally selfishness, and thus damnation is ultimately self-destruction. As Romans 1 says uh, of, of sinners, God gave them over to their own lesser desires, their sinful desires. 
We see this illustrated in Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. In The Great Divorce, hell is depicted. This is not Lewis actually thinking that this is what hell is like and what heaven is like. It's just a, a supposal, an imaginary kind of telling of things. But he, de- he depicts hell as sort of this dismal, gray, shadowy city. And its residents have quite literally become shadows of their former selves. They've become unreal. Their various forms of self-centeredness have caused them to become shallow ghosts of who God created them to be. In other words, for Lewis, our sin involves becoming less of who we were made to be, less human. In contrast, heaven is depicted as actually being more real, more solid than this present world, home to the true solid joy that we long for. And this parallels Lewis's description of the new Narnia, which is Lewis's picture of heaven, in the final book of the Narnia series, The Last Battle. The new Narnia turns out to be just like the old one, just deeper and more real. He says every rock and flower and blade of grass looks as if it meant more. Deeper in, the characters cry. In this imaginary story, though, of the great divorce, the people in hell are allowed to visit the outskirts of heaven. And although they're invited to leave hell behind and enter heaven if they wanted, none of them is willing to leave behind their sin in order to do so. As some have therefore said, Lewis depicts hell as being locked from the inside. Left to ourselves, we pursue our sin to our own ruin. We would rather have the lesser pleasure of sin than the supreme pleasure of God himself. Lastly, the third theme in Lewis I want to highlight is that of the imagination, the Christian imagination. Now, when I say imagination, I'm not talking here about things that are made up or aren't, aren't real, like fairy tales. That is what Lewis would call the imaginary. Here, we're referring to, to, to ways of thinking and communicating that help us better capture those things that ordinary thought and speech struggle to convey. Imaginative thought, then, according to Lewis, is actually a vehicle for helping one more fully grasp reality as it truly is. And it opens up our sense to that which is beyond mere reason to experiences of things like joy. Now, Lewis embodied this use of imagination in his own writings. He is masterful with words, particularly his use of imagery and illustration. He is an incredible, he has an incredible skill of, of drawing on some of our most common and natural human experiences in, in order to make his point incredibly plain to you. You not only know what he's saying, but you feel like you have just experienced it. But further, Lewis sees stories or fiction as a way of conveying truth, what we might call imaginative narrative apologetics. He's using narrative story and imagination to make a case for Christianity, apologetics. For instance, toward the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader uh, in the Narnia series, Lucy cries that she can't bear the thought of never seeing Aslan again if she is to leave Narnia for the last time. But Aslan says to her, But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Edmund asks, Are you there too, sir? Aslan, are you in our world as well? Aslan says, I am. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. 
This was the very reason you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. Lewis likewise intends the children who enter the world of Narnia through his books to have their imaginations expanded and thus be better prepared for the story that Christianity tells. And this is how Lewis understands the role of fiction and the use of the imagination to expand our minds to greater grasp reality. In contrast, Lewis gives us the portrait of Eustace at the beginning of the voyage of the Dawn Treader. The book opens with these famous words, probably one of the more famous openings of any book. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Lewis goes on to describe Eustace as this sort of uptight, drab, sterile little boy who reads none of the right sort of books. Lewis goes on to say that all throughout. He never read the right sort of books. He always reads the wrong sort of books. He likes, he, he, he likes books that are sort of uninteresting, unimaginative, dealing with facts and information. But he was very weak on books that told tales of things like dragons. This is the person in Lewis's mind that has no capacity or training in imagination. And it is the sorry character for Lewis. Now, Scripture employs the imaginative as well, does it not? Scripture engages our imaginative faculties. We think of the poetry of the Psalms and the prophets. Or I think of the apocalyptic writing of Revelation. Uh, the apocalypse meaning the unveiling, these images that, that unveil how things truly are, opening our mind to the way things actually are. For example... I could tell you, the empires of this world carry out great evil. Or, I could paint a picture depicting those empires as a monster, as a beast, with ten horns and seven heads persecuting the people of God. On the one hand, you can know something propositionally. I can just tell it to you straight. And on the other hand, you can imagine it and feel it and absorb it. C.S. Lewis says, this use of Christian imagination is of great importance for forming us as Christians. That our minds, our imaginations, our, our, our outlooks, our sense of longing would be shaped then by the true nature of things. The use of Christian imagination helps us perceive and thus inhabit the world as it truly is. Sometimes we talk about applying the scripture but that, but that language of application can suggest the idea of abstraction, like we're using a syringe to extract something out of Scripture that we can then use over here in the real world. But what if the real world, the world as it actually is, is the world that Scripture portrays and imagines? What if we viewed application less as pulling something out of the text and more as a matter of entering into the world of the text, seeking to inhabit its story as our own. In this case, application would involve allowing our imaginations to be captured and shaped by the biblical revelation, by God's portrait of the world as found in Scripture. With that, let me leave you with uh, some reading recommendations. If you are interested in reading more from Lewis, um, if you haven't read anything from Lewis, you might start with The Weight of Glory, which uh, 
dovetails with a lot of these themes here. You can find it online for free as a PDF if you Google it. It's eight pages and a PDF. Um, or you could start with probably his most popular work of nonfiction, which is Mere Christianity. Um, actually, at the turn of the century, Christianity Today conducted a survey asking participants to nominate the best religious books of the 20th century, and Mere Christianity came out overwhelmingly at the top of the list. Um, if you want some of Lewis's best writing, but maybe more advanced, I personally think Miracles is probably his best nonfiction work, and Until We Have Faces is probably his best fiction work. Um, and then Surprised by Joy is his telling of his own conversion, um, and that's what I've been drawing on a good bit here as well. Let's transition now as we move to the Lord's Supper. Um, even as we were thinking about the role of Christian imagination in the Christian life, uh, let's apply that even as we think about the Lord's Supper. Um, as scripture gives us poetry and imagery and apocalyptic, apocalyptic uh, symbols that are meant to capture our imagination, so scripture also gives us uh, ordained rites, um, rites within the church of baptism in the Lord's Supper. These actual physical symbols we are embodied people. We are, we are people with imaginations, and God knows that. And so he communicates to us not only through word, but he also communicates the gospel to us uh, through physical, tangible symbol. And so as we do so, consider that, that God has actually given us physical elements that you will not only see, but you will actually touch and you will actually taste as God's way of communicating the gospel to you. Um, and so let your imagination be captivated this morning as you take the Lord's Supper of what the Lord's Supper displays, the bread and the cup depicting uh, the, the death of Christ for all those who trust in him, his body and blood given over for us in death. And the symbolism of taking that and eating it is saying that I am united with Jesus in his death, that what these elements represent, Jesus' saving death, is actually absorbed into me, that I am actually, actually brought into, I actually participate in the benefits of Jesus' saving death. And what would it look like for our minds every week? That's why Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper every week, that we can let our imaginations be greater and greater captivated by the truth of the gospel in this way.